The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's my first time at the uh, uh, famous IMC here in Redwood City. And um, even though I have been friends with Gil Fronsdell for uh, many years, um, and we currently serve uh, on the uh, San Francisco Zen Center Elders Council together. So uh, maybe, maybe you could help me out. Uh, uh, wh- why are you here? <laughs> Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Any anybody? Why did why are why are you here today? Why did you come? Uh, to be with Sangha and to hear Dharma talk. To be with to be with Sangha, to be with other practitioners, and to learn uh, learn more about the Dharma and exactly. hear, yeah. Great. Good reason. Anybody else? Um, I'd say um, I'm here. The, the lessons that I've learned in my life have taken a long time. Um, and I've gained wisdom through them, but some of them 10 years, 20 years maybe. Um, so I come here to gain wisdom. Mm-hmm. To gain wisdom within a half an hour rather than ten years. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And why? Why do you want to do that? Um, I guess because it seems well. The, I guess the conclusion that I've come to in the last three years maybe was it's uh, it's the I feel like it's the reason why we're here is to keep gaining the wisdom. So there's a possibility of of. Um, um, uh, realizing uh, or, or um, uh, gaining wisdom, and that would be um, kind of a fulfillment of, of some kind of uh, reason why you're here, why you're a human being, why you're here on the earth. Something like that? Yes. Yeah, right. Good. Anybody else? Coming here um, sometimes, not always, opens my heart. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility of your heart opening even wider than it was before you came. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, many of us share that uh, kind of like need for support to actually do that. Yeah. Anybody else have a reason why you came today? Well, the longer I sit, the more real I feel and the richer and more vivid life is and uh, the more I'm in the present moment and I feel a great support from the group. So the, possibi- the possibility of a more a richer, more vivid life 
just moment to moment experience, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, um, I have particularly an ethical dilemma that I'm wrestling with, and I wish to um, hear Buddhist teachers um, express their views on these particular things, or one particular thing. I see. So there's a possibility that you might hear something that informs or helps you with this particular decision. ethical dilemma or decision you have. Yeah. Yes. Okay. To cool. relax and meditate. To relax and meditate. There's a possibility of, of deeper relaxation and, and uh, being in your body, meditating. I just wanted to say that um, for me, it's beyond the possibility because I've been coming here for a long time and ever since I discovered IMC, um, it's, it has helped on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. So I don't need to think about the possibility of something happening in the future because it's already happening right now. Right, yes, right. It really helps. I think for me, I feel a sense of possibility for um, us, for us, mm-hmm. and together. And so just to come here and connect in some way, um, I hope can help bring peace into, the, into all of our world. So maybe that's possibility on a larger scale, you know, maybe societal. Mm-hmm. Just including that. Yeah. Including that in your vision, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Please. Um, I come to recenter myself and refine peace. I have a chaotic world, and our world is a chaotic world, and this is a nice place to come back and remember what's important. Right, right. Taking refuge and uh, and returning to some place that is. Um, sometimes not so easy to access in in this busy complex world we have created for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, good reason. For the day-long retreats and the longer retreats, it's helpful to be away from home and the distractions of home and be able to meditate for a longer period of time than I typically would at my house. Right, yeah, that's very important. Sometimes we have to leave our our particular context, you know, that with all its, you know, uh, maybe potential distractions, and come to some place that actually supports us to just be with our stillness. Thank you. <clears throat> well, I'm I come here on Sundays to um, to learn how to be quiet. <laughs> uh huh. In my thoughts, yeah, and, um, peaceful. So, learn how to be quiet. That's not very easy to do for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for um, saying all of that, and and. Uh, helping me understand why you're here. That's, in some ways, that's why I'm here, too. You know? 
practice together with others, to connect with uh, some part of myself that feels maybe more uh, real, more authentic, has the possibility for uh, some clarity, peace, settled, quality. So today I wanted to actually talk about possibility. Um, the possibility of, of uh, maybe looking at possibility from a, uh, a larger, in a larger way. Uh, maybe uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in that myself because I, I sense that uh, we are on, uh, as, our, as a society, as a culture, we're on a very unsustainable kind of like path. And if we don't all start to get onto the possibility train pretty soon, we're not going to have uh, very much possibility and that we all have to start seeing that um, in cooperation with others and also for our own lives. So I'm also interested in the possibility that's personal, that's um, mine, feels like mine, feels like this moment, this mind, and this body, what's possible now. And they're connected. For me, they're connected. The, the possibility that's personal needs to be there to make the possibility that's more, uh, say, cooperative, collaborative, societal. So I have uh, three stories about possibility that I wanted to share with you today. And, and once I, I thought of these three stories, um, I thought, well, every story is about possibility, you know? It's like it could go this way or it could go that way. Uh, but, but I came up with these three examples from my own life of uh, practice, you could say, with possibility. So about 20 years ago, I was a um, new student at Tazahara, and I had just begun practice. I didn't, know, I didn't know anything. I had just come back from Asia. I ended up at the Zen monastery. I, I knew nothing about Buddhism, and I didn't, I, I, I didn't have any sense that um, uh, this was going to be my path, my career, my anything. I, I was just there. And I was in this very intensive practice period. And I was feeling uh, uh, quite in over my head. Um, as I said, I didn't know what I was doing. And then one day, 
we had a, a special visitor come to the monastery. And he was somebody from Japan, and, and there was a big, there was a big uh, 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 to-do about this fellow's arrival. And, and, um, and, and then somebody came to me and said, Robert, we would like you to be uh, the attendant for Huitsu Suzuki Roshi. And this is Suzuki Roshi who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. This was his son who came from Japan, and he came down to Tassajara. And he, he usually only comes every um, uh, maybe five, five, six, seven years. And he was there. And they asked me to be his attendant. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, okay, I'll do that. And they said, and there's a, there's a shosan ceremony, and we, when the bells start later today, we want you to go to his room and uh, um, uh, knock on his door and follow him to the zendo where we will have a shosan ceremony. And I'd never heard this Japanese word before. I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I didn't know anything, right? And, and so I, uh, I hear the bells and, um, and, I, and I run over to his room and I knock on the room and he opens the door, and, and this very small uh, man is standing there with his, with his robes, you know, beautiful robes. And he, he's, very, he's very small, but he seemed very big in this door. And, and I said, um, and he looked at me, and I said, I'm here to take you to the Shosan ceremony. And... Um, he, all of a sudden, he had had kind of a smile on his face when I opened the door, and all of a sudden, his face went, like, in another direction. It went... <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and he goes, mm. and his body didn't move, but he said, Shosan. And um, I said, Shosan. And... I didn't know that Shosan is, is actually a uh, very elaborate uh, uh, and intense ceremony where, where the teacher sits in a um, uh, uh, kind of a, a big throne-like uh, chair and uh, in some kind of uh, ceremonial fashion, the, the students... A student, one student comes up at a time and asks a question to the teacher, and they have kind of like a Dharma combat, you know, and then they, the next student comes, <laughs> and, and, um, and Huitsu-san uh, did not speak really any English, very, very little English. So, so he said, Shosan, and I said, Shosan. And, and then there was silence, and he was like, hmm, Shosan. <laughs> and I said, Shosan. <laughs> and he, and he um, was like still with this, this look on his face, hmm, hmm. And he looked at me, and he goes, Chosan. And I detected a slight difference in the, in the show and the cho. I said, 
And I thought, oh, maybe I got the word wrong. So I said, I said, Chosan. And I didn't know if that was, if I was saying something in between Cho or Cho or what, but I was, Chosan. And he says, Chosan. And Chosan means tea, like informal tea. <laughs> and, and I could see his eyes start to like kind of light up. He says, Chosan. <laughs> I said, Chosan. <laughs> and then he says, Chosan. And then he took his staff and he like marched out past, the, past me and towards the zendo. And I followed along and we went to tea. <laughs> but it was, it was very close there for a while. Uh, years later, I was in a, I was in a uh, giving a Dharma talk as a head student, like nine years later at Tassajara, and somebody asked me in the Dharma talk, is it enough just to show up? And I said, yes. And in the moment that I said that, I thought of that experience. Yes. How many people here, uh, uh, or, or is there anybody here who is uh, recovering from uh, cancer? Has, has, been, uh, has any experience with cancer? Very few. few. Very few of you. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, well, a special welcome to you all. A year ago, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, metastasized uh, testicular cancer. And, um, and over the course of the fall, I, I did uh, some months of, of chemo and surgery, and uh, now it looks like I'm cancer-free. But that was a really intense practice experience for me. And, and some, at some point early uh, in the process, in my treatment process, uh, my wife and I had heard about this uh, uh, apparently brilliant uh, practitioner of Chinese medicine who specialized in treating people uh, with cancer. And so we went to see him. And, um, and of course, we, we couldn't help but sit down and, and ask him, you know, wh- why do you think this happened? We had a lot of questions, a whole list of questions, but that was one of our first questions. Why, why do you think I got cancer? With, with some, some sense, you know, that, well, maybe if I know why, then I know how to, you know do things a little differently in the future or, or stop doing that, at least that particular thing. And, and he, he was a very wise person and he, uh, he looked at us, he said, well, that's, that's, that's an okay question. You could ask that question. You could uh, say, yes, why 
What, what is it about, what was it about my life, my existence, my body, the conditions of my life, the cir- my circumstances that, that gave rise to this life-threatening illness? And um, he said, you could start to make a list. You could take a piece of paper and you could make a list. And you say, well, maybe it was this. Maybe it was this kind of like uh, little overworking habit I have. Or maybe it was I wasn't getting enough sleep. Or maybe I was eating too much of this kind of food. Or I was uh, uh, this and that. And eventually you could start, you know, you, adding more things onto the list. And it would be very difficult to um, not continue to add things on the list. Because it's, it's very difficult to know what actually, what group of conditions came together to cause cancer. So I said, eventually, that list might just look like your whole life, you know? He said, you could do that, but what would be a much uh, more fruitful and beneficial exercise for you would be to um, create a new list and have that new list be as unrecognizable to the old list as possible. And I thought that was really interesting. That was like a very skillful way of uh, encouraging me to not go backwards, but to take a step forward. To take a step forward into possibility. <clears throat> so so uh, my wife and I left there, and, and that's, in some ways that's been uh, my mantra for uh, the last few months, is to make myself unrecognizable to my old self. encourage myself to uh, see possibility, not be stuck in the same uh, habit, patterns, ruts, practices, ways that I uh, identify with myself. So one of the things I started doing after that uh, was writing. I'm one of these people who, uh, when I start to write by about the third or fourth word, I'm, I'm critical of what, of the second word. You know, I just like immediately I start to say, oh, you know, I start to edit. My edit mind shifts into gear and, and then I'm, I'm, pretty soon I'm sunk. I'm so critical of myself in that way, in that particular form. So I, I joined a writing group, and I started this practice of writing. And my practice is I sit down, and I, and I don't prepare ahead of time, but I sit down, and I just start writing. And I don't know what's going to come out. I just, I just write for one hour, and at one hour, I stop writing. So I, um, I wrote something the other day, maybe, maybe two months ago. And um, 
really strange things are starting to come out. And um, uh, I'm remembering things from my uh, childhood, and it's, it's very interesting what happens when you actually have a chance to articulate something, uh, whether through writing or, or verbally. I'd like to share what I wrote with you. And this is just how it came out. This is almost exactly, I've, I've uh, the, you know, be patient with the, some of the grammar, but uh, I've added a couple per, uh, periods or taken out a couple words that were misspelled or something like that. But this is how it came out. I remember as a young person, maybe I was in the third grade, in class at Supai Elementary School in Scottsdale, Arizona, my teacher, as was her way of disciplining her class, told me to go stand outside the classroom. I had never before been sentenced to standing outside the classroom before, so I didn't really understand what was happening. But I still remember the strange and, un- and unusual feeling of just standing there. Suddenly, outside, while all of my classmates were inside, standing next to the huge classroom door and along the long brick wall with other doors facing a small grassy area. The walls were very tall and there was an overhanging ledge above me. Along the brick wall next to the classroom door was a rubber bumper inside a round metal casing attached to the wall. I was told to stand outside. What does that mean, I thought to myself. Soon my mind shifted into a more play-like state. I became fascinated by the rubber bumper on the wall. I pressed on it, and it was firm but giving in a way uh, to absorb the shock of the door as it opened. I noticed that next to every one of the five or six doors along the wall and walkway, there was another rubber bumper in the same spot. For me, at about seven or eight years old, the bumper was at about chest height. Seeing all these rubber knobs along the wall, I wondered what they were for. As I touched the knob, I wondered if something would happen or was happening somewhere else that I couldn't see in that moment. Maybe a sound was going off in the principal's office. Soon, I was sure that these rubber knobs were connected to the bell that rang at the end of every class. And standing there on the outside while my class continued inside, I wondered if I now had the power to cause the class to end. Maybe all I had to do was press the rubber knob and all of my classmates would be able to join me outside. (laughs) But if each knob was how the bell was to end the class and the knob outside of each door was the bell for that classroom, how was it that at a very specific and certain time, not only my class, but all the class bells rang? Does someone coordinate ringing each individual bell from the rubber knob outside the door at exactly the same time every day? There must be a way to do this, I thought. And of course, I'd never seen it because I'd never been standing outside the classroom at the exact moment when all the bells rang. But now that I was here to see it, how was it going to happen? Would the person who had come to ring the bells be surprised that I was there? Would I be in this way as be in his way as he went to press all the rubber knobs at the same time? Or would it be many people who came to press each one as a group together? I imagine that there was a special tool that a person who looked 
something like the crusty old guy who works in the shop um, uh, and is always walking around fixing things used to press all the knobs at the same time. Yes, I thought that was definitely it. The very special custom made for our school tool was a very long metal pole that extended the entire length of the wall with its six classrooms and six doors and six rubber knobs. And I imagine the long metal pole would be held parallel to the brick wall and that the six metal arms would extend out from the metal pole at a 90 degree angle, allowing the person holding the metal pole to see that each arm extending toward the brick wall was lining up with the rubber knob at about the height of my chest and the metal pole would press the knobs at the same time. I also imagined that this I wrote here that I'm, that I'm going to skip over. I imagine that this metal pole was the same as the metal pole in the fence that was right down at the end of all the classes. And that this inside the metal pole at the, in this fence ran the water that went to the uh, drinking fountains. And I wrote a little bit about that too. So here I was standing outside. But now what? Do I just stand here? Was my teacher going to come outside and talk to me, admonish me for my unruly behavior or not? A little more time passed, and I started to think that maybe she meant that I should go home. It seemed so <laughs> odd to me that she would want me to just stand there outside the classroom door. A few people came by during this time, a student from another class with a pass to the bathroom, someone from the school office who looked at me suspiciously, a groundskeeper who doesn't care at all what I'm doing, um, and, and maybe the custodian guy is around somewhere, but I don't know. Um, um, but for some reason, I started walking away from the classroom. It was a beautiful, warm spring day, and I soon my, found myself walking silently off the school campus. With solitary, sure steps, I crossed the busy street, which at this time in the early uh, or late morning was without its usual crossing guard. And then I stepped up onto the light-colored concrete sidewalk. I was a bit disoriented by the experience as I was without my books, but I knew that our yellow suburban ranch-style house was not too far away. So I started walking. There were large cumulus clouds above me in the sky, and since it had rained a bit earlier in the day, there were puddles in various places on the sidewalk that I had to be careful as I walked not to step in and get my shoes wet. As I watched for the puddles, I noticed that there were also clouds in the puddles. The air was still and warm, and the puddles were like mirrors to the sky, and as I looked into puddle after puddle, the effect was like looking up into the sky. Huge, puffy white clouds hovering still as moored ships in the vast expanse of blue sky, which seemingly extended for as far as I could imagine. There was this expansive space in both directions down through the concrete sidewalk under my feet and up into the sun-filled sky. My mind was totally engaged by the experience of expansiveness in both directions, and I became deeper and deeper involved in the mystery of how the sky could be manifesting bright, open spaciousness in both directions simultaneously. 
I slowed down and lost my sense of walking toward home. One block of sidewalk was now taking a very long time to travel. I would stop and try to understand how the view down into the sky was different or similar to the one before. The world around me closed in and there was no longer any memory of standing outside the classroom or thoughts of, of what I would do later that afternoon. I was completely in that moment with the sky above and the sky below. And then I noticed something strange, a feeling like I had never had before came over me. It was as if my body had disappeared and there was no separation between myself and the puddles at my feet and everything around me. The light and the air and the trees and the sky and the sun and the concrete were all the same as me. We were not different and in the state of no difference that I had fallen into, there was nothing at all to fear. There was no problem, nothing to worry about and I felt completely held and taken care of by everything around me. The feeling was inside and intimately personal and at the same time extremely open and expansive, connecting me to what felt like the furthest reaches of the sky above my eyes and the sky beneath my little sneaker-clad feet. So I eventually made it home and, and, and my mother was like, what are you doing home? She, and I said, well, they let me out. They let us out early. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and she, so she made me lunch. And uh, then they called from the school uh, pretty soon after that. And uh, uh, they said, no, no, Bobby made it home. He's okay. And, uh, um, and my mother didn't, see, it didn't seem to bother her. But when I, I was just in Arizona visiting my family, and I, I read this story. This is only the second time I've ever read this story. I read this story for them. And my mother told me that uh, she used to follow after me when I went to school, that I was uh, constantly, I'd, I'd leave with my brothers and sister and I would take like a half hour more to get to school. And it was just down the street. I would take like a half hour more than them to get to school. And they were constantly wondering why I was so late for school and everything. I was that kind of kid. So, so as practitioners, the, the, the most important thing as you can see, these, these stories were all kind of about possibility in different ways, but, but as practitioners, the most important thing is not for us to... Uh, well, the most important thing is for us to understand that we don't create possibility. We don't have to create possibility, more possibility in our life. We don't have to make possibility where we thought there wasn't possibility. We don't have to um, see that, oh, I need more possibility in this moment, and let's, let's start to make that happen. For us as practitioners, it's important for us to see recognize, embrace the fact that everything is possibility. 
and that we ourselves, our true nature, is possibility. This is who we already are. We don't have to make it happen. This is how things are. Everything is new in each moment. In Mahayana Buddhism, we have a kind of a, a way of seeing this, this picture of possibility. It involves uh, three kinds of minds or three kinds of Buddhas. Uh, Dharmakaya Buddha, a Sambhogakaya Buddha, and a Nirmanakaya Buddha. Those words are not important. The important thing is that it's, it's possible to see possibility, a picture of possibility for our lives as practitioners. in three different ways. The one way is the possibility of how things, uh, how things are right now. The Dharmakaya, sometimes we say Dharmakaya Buddha. The Dharmakaya Buddha is um, the truth of possibility in each moment the fundamental truth that we are not permanent and that we don't exist separate from everything else around us. And because of that, we are possibility and everything is possibility. That's the fundamental truth of how things work. The second, and, and this is sometimes uh, pictured, imagined as uh, the truth of space itself. Dharmakaya is like space. Sambhogakaya is, is the possibility when we practice to see um, that see the, uh, our true nature as a human being. To know, to recognize, to embrace our own capacity to be aware, to know, to see. This is the other, this is the, the fruit of our practice, is to see that in this knowing, in this awareness, is boundless, unconfined possibility. And this is oftentimes depicted as uh, the sun, the sun in the sky. So we were up on Mount Tam sometime a while ago and, and uh, looking down on Mount Tam you could see San Francisco and you could see the clouds 
come covering uh, uh, over the city, but the sun was still there. So when you're in the city, it feels like it's, well, it's just it's cloudy today, but the sun is still there. So this is a similar notion here with our uh, uh, this this Buddha. She understands that this knowing, this unconfined, boundless possibility of awareness is there all the time. We don't have to make it. We don't have to get it from somebody else. It's not coming out as the fruit of, of 20, 30 years of practice. It's there right now. We just don't see it because we're distracted by other things. We're distracted by the, the thoughts, the images of our mind, our views and attachments. We don't see that this boundless, unconfined possibility of our knowing is right there with us all the time from the time we were born, even for the seven-year-old kid, it's there. And we don't lose it. The third aspect of possibility here is um, the nirmanakaya, which is the manifestation of of our practice and the way things are in this body, in this life, as beings who can help other beings. The manifestation of beings who can vow and um, have the intention to live their life for the benefit of all beings. So these three things come together. I think it's time for me to stop, isn't it? So, so um, one last thing. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's interesting sometimes to kind of create pictures of, of various kinds of Buddhas who do different things and, uh, or tell stories that are uh, funny or maybe insightful or not. And then Zen, Zen has a very... Uh, uh, a, Different and a particular way of coming, coming at this uh, this whole question of possibility, uh, and so I want to share a very short Zen koan with you. Um, I know we're not a Zen group here, but I hope that's okay. Um, uh, uh, it, it may may make my point just as more rapidly than some other long, uh, drawn out story. So. So uh, Suzuki Roshi's, uh, the founder of his temple, uh, had a koan that he uh, worked with for years and years and years. And it goes something like this. There was a teacher in ancient China called Zuigan. And Zuigan took up the practice of saying, Zuigan? saying his own name, saying Zuigan, and answering it by saying, yes. So he'd go around saying, Zuigan, yes. Zuigan, yes, like all day long. 
And people started wondering, why, what's going on with this guy? You know, why, why is he doing this? And they were worried about him. And, and, uh, uh, but they just let him do this. And, uh, and eventually they just, they just accepted him for Zwigan? Yes. And the founder of Suzuki Roshi's temple studied that koan for years and years. So we could study it too. So it's kind of like, Robert? Yes. And then you have to stick around for that yes. So we can all do this together. I'm going to go one, two, three, and you can all say your name, and then you know how to answer your question, right? <laughs> it's kind of simple. It's kind of like, but we can actually experience it. And I don't know if it's going to answer your dilemma. It, it may or may not. I don't may have any guarantees. So... When I go one, two, three, your name, all together, out loud, and then answer. One, two, three. Robert? Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs>